0: We are grateful that we have a Savior not only that we need, but that meets our needs, the need of our being reconciled to our Father, as Biggie was praying about, our worship leader was praying about this morning, and I'm sure there are many needs that are represented in the people that are here today if you're a guest today I want to say hello we're glad that you decided to come check us out at the movie theater here and if today's your first time in a couple weeks we won't be here and so it's not because we're trying to do pump fakes on you and uh, ditch you or anything like that but we've been here at the movie theater for about nine years almost ten years now and we are moving locations and we're excited about that and I'll say more about that in just a moment but I know that everybody that's here this morning these are the this is the first time you sat in these seats at least at church I understand they're incredibly comfortable Somebody said to me before the first service, so you're going to let us sit in these seats for a week or two weeks, and then you're going to get us out here? Yes, that is exactly what's going to happen. But I realize that you're tempted, too, to kick back and recline. So let's go ahead and do it. Go ahead and push the button if you want to recline right now. While I'm doing the announcements, we can do that. Pastor Jason's going to preach in a minute. I just ask that you would put the thing back down. But we're not giving a sleep offering to the Lord this morning. That's not the goal of what's happening. Why want you to be actively involved in the worship, even through the Word. And so go ahead and kick those back if you want to. And like I was alluding to... Um, Southbridge Fellowship is going to be moving in a couple weeks. On August 28th, it's going to be our first week meeting, not here at the movie theater, but at Pine Hollow Middle School, which is right off of Leesville Road and 540. It's a little bit over. It's 4.1 miles, I think it is, on MapQuest or Google Maps or whatever it is. And uh, just a few minutes past here, one exit past uh, Glenwood Avenue at 540 and Leesville Road. Turn at the... (laughs) Drug stores. <laughs> there are a bunch of drug stores there, but turn at the CVS, turn right, and you're right into the school. They've got a, a great auditorium. We're excited about what's happening. It's not just that the theater downsized and we had to figure something out and we were scrambling, scrambling to find something. Oh, that's kind of the mode we were in when it first happened, but we're excited about what's happening. I'm excited because I think that God's going to be able to take our ministry to the next level at this next place. There's going to be a brand new auditorium. I think there's a picture of that up there. Uh, it's got more seats than we've ever had in any, any auditorium uh, before and so that's opportunity for more lives to be changed. And if you've been at this church for any time, you know that we're all about seeing people connected to Jesus Christ, not just to this church, but to Jesus, so that Jesus can transform their lives. And then there's going to be some great classrooms for our students. We're going to have more opportunity for growth than that. They're going to be easier to convert than some of our current theaters. There won't be gummy bears and soda on the floor, so we'll be excited about that opportunity. And then we can grow into them, too, through our Bridge Kids ministry and what they're trying to do to help parents connect kids to Jesus for life change. We're also going to start SYU, which is our student ministry. Junior high middle school is going to be meeting on Sunday mornings. There's going to be information coming out about that. I'm not going to give you a bunch of times because even the service times are changing. So lot's changing at our church, What is exciting. We're going to be doing 9, 15, and 11 on August 28th when we move to that school and so if you come the regular service times you'll be really early it'll be great for some of you who are typically late not condemning or shaming you just we all know that it's happening Um, so we're gonna delay that a little bit and you'll have more time in between to hang out one of the things we're really pumped about is that we're gonna be able to stay there until about two o'clock in the afternoon and so that's gonna give us opportunity to to not feel the pressure to rush out. And so if you want to connect with other people, talk about what's going on in your life, talk about maybe something God spoke to your heart in the message or just that you need prayer or anything like that, we're going to have opportunities for that, unlike we've ever had before. And so we're excited about what's happening with, with some of those things in our church. And then what's, what I need to make sure you get this week. And so last week I gave you August 28th, 9, 15, 11, all these stats, 100 more seats, all that thing. Today I want you to remember that next week, August 21st, After the second service, after this service, we're going to go over to the school together, kind of a pre launch time together. And so, if you're a volunteer in our church, we definitely want you there. We're going to be giving you some t shirts. We're going to have lunch together. If you've ever thought about volunteering at our church, Like right now, you're thinking about possibly volunteering at some point on a Sunday morning. You're invited to come, and so if you haven't received an email invitation already with an opportunity to sign up for that, this is your invitation. We'd love to have you. After the second service, next week, we're gonna go over to Pine Hollow Middle School. We're gonna spend some time there. We're gonna eat lunch, give out some T-shirts, like I said, have a little time together. We're gonna be doing some prayer and things along those lines, and then we're gonna break up. If you're a Bridge Kids teacher, you're gonna see the class that you're gonna be in. There's gonna be some training for that. Hospitality, we need people on the parking lot team. So if you've never served before and you just don't know where to get started, we'd love to have you on the parking lot team because we're really going to be growing that ministry in a way unlike we've ever done before. And it's really, if you think about the parking lot team, that's our first opportunity for hospitality for people as they come to our church, whether they're regular attenders or brand new the first time. And so we'd love to have you be a part of that. for some of you, you might need to rethink what you've been doing. Maybe you've been serving in Bridge Kids and you want to be on the tech team or maybe you've been on the tech team and you want to go to SYU or maybe you want to be in the lobby and talking to new people. Whatever it is, uh, we want to help you find your sweet spot. So we've got a table out in the lobby called the bridge team table. And so they're out there. they are people that are helping you find out where your sweet spot is in serving. We'd love to have you be a part of that. And one more announcement that's happening today is that there's Discovering Southbridge. So if you're new to the church and I've never met you before, I'd love to meet you. I'll be under the blue tent. We tried to hide it on you. It's in the front front corner by the box office. We didn't really try to hide it on you, but it's just the way that it worked out with renovations. Um, and I'll be up there after the service. And volunteers, I promise, I will actually make it out there after the service this time for that. And then uh, some more. There's a lot of stuff happening at our church. Sad for us, but exciting news for the Tovey family. If you were here last week, you saw that we were talking about and announcing that Pastor Jason, who's been our shepherding pastor since we launched the church, and his wife and their kids have accepted a a position as senior pastor of a church. It's actually the church that he grew up in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He's going to go up there and be their senior pastor. And he's going to be around here for the next couple weeks. Today he's going to be preaching his guts out. He promised us. And so we're expecting some passionate preaching here coming in a minute as he opens up the word in mark but um, you heard me say that jason's had a huge impact in my life that he's uh, made me a better husband better father and a better pastor and i know that he's impacted many of your lives as well and i'm going to tell you one thing is as my friend i know what will speak to his life is if you give him words of encouragement and not everybody i'm sure is going to be able to get up to him and say things over the next few weeks as he's here but we've set up a box out in the lobby We're calling it a Barnabas box. Barnabas was an encourager, and the point of it is to try and fill that box with words of encouragement that we're going to give to him that hopefully he will open when he gets to that church, and maybe he's serving there, and he's in his office and decides to break them all open, or he's sitting in his living room, wherever he decides to put that box. But out there, there's going to be no cards, pens, and I just ask you, if Jason's ever impacted your life, maybe it was a sermon he preached, maybe it's a sermon he'll preach today, Uh, maybe you bumped into him in the lobby one time, perhaps you've been friends with him for years. If you just take a couple moments over the next couple weeks and go out to that box and fill out those note cards and just give him some words of how God's used something he's done or said or the example he's been um, to impact your walk with Jesus and your life in some, in some way, he would be blessed by that. And then also on August 28th, we're going to have an open house for him. Just be looking at your emails for times on that and where it's going to be located and whatnot. But August 28th in the evening, I know it'll be in the evening, uh, we're going to have a time where you can come say goodbye to him. I'm going to pray for him as he comes to bring the word and pray for us. And so, Jason, you want to come up this way and uh, we'll just bow our heads and close our eyes and talk to the Lord. Father God, thank you uh, that well, things are changing and all those, finding which auditorium we're in today and all that stuff that uh, you have a place for us to meet and that you want to meet with us. And God, I pray for every person that's here today. Maybe some have come for the very first time and there's all these transitions happening and whatnot and, Everybody who's here today is going to be able to say, I remember when we were at the movie theater, and that was part of our story. And, and God, we know that you've got great days ahead, and we are excited about that. We know that you can do beyond what we could ever ask or imagine, and we know that oftentimes what you do is different than we expect. And I pray you'd do something through this message that Jason's going to speak. I know he's prepared. He studied the scriptures this week. His heart's ready. I pray for our hearts to be ready and to be open. We know that you are seeking worshipers that worship you in spirit and truth, and I pray as we open up your truth, that you'd be pleased as we worship you with our minds and with our hearts and we lay ourselves open before you and we're honest about where we're at with you, how we relate with you, and I pray, God, that you grow us in our relationship with you as a result of opening your word. I pray if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, that they trust you as Savior today, I pray for those of us who do know you, please grow us, take us to the next step, the next level in our relationship with you. Refresh us, encourage us, give us your word, and I pray for Jason's lips, you just anoint his lips for this moment. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks,
1: Good morning, church. Wow, what a different room, huh? Can you imagine? Would it be like to be at a church where you can see each other, like what God really could do? Wow, that'd be great. That was sarcasm. Whatever. These are the jokes. Hey, well, I'm really glad for the opportunity to be with you this morning, and this morning we're continuing our series on the book of Mark, so if you have a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 8, we'll continue this series, and we're really investigating and finding answers to the question, who is this Jesus? And actually, that question will, in a sense, be asked in our text today. And uh, over the next few weeks, we'll be uh, changing direction a little bit, uh, different series coming up, and then we'll come back to Mark in time, Lord willing. I wanted to invite you this week as well, to all the things going on, this Thursday night at Celebrate Recovery, uh, I've been invited to uh, share my testimony. I'd love to have you come, 7 o'clock at the church office, everyone's welcome to come. That's uh, this Thursday night. So this morning, we'll continue our series, our study in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8, and I'm just going to... Read the text for you all the way through, just a few verses, and then we'll go verse to verse as is our style. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And that is our text this morning. And what we've seen really over the last several weeks in our studies is that Jesus has been really giving them enough proof to answer the question who he really is. Who is this Jesus? Is he simply a prophet? Is he a miracle worker, a preacher, social justice advocate? What is he? Who is he? And we're finding answers and really all, everything up to this point leads to this point with this discussion that we see Last week, Pastor Scott led us through really an understanding of a living parable. Do you remember what we learned last week where Jesus was healing a man who was blind, but uh, different than other times of healing, he didn't just like heal him immediately, it was a process of healing, which was supposed to really be an opportunity for the disciples to consider their own lives in light of the truth that they were seeing. Because the text before that, we saw that the disciples, just because of their hard hearts, they just don't understand who they have in Jesus. They've seen him do tons and tons of stuff, healing people and feedings and these teachings and a teaching with authority they would never heard or seen before, and yet they still don't quite understand who he is. So then we come to our text this morning. Look at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked them, who do people say? I am. I want to pause on that phrase, on the way. Now, anytime you see the phrase on the way in the book of Mark, it means that Jesus is about to teach and lead. It's just what he does with them. It's not just getting to a destination. He's actually taking, he's seizing every moment. And on the way means that they're going one place, but on the way, ministry is happening. And it reminds me of the Old Testament commands in Deuteronomy chapter four and chapter 11 where parents are instructed to teach their children as they lie down as they wake up along the road to teach them the commands of the Lord and that's exactly what Jesus is doing with these children, so to speak. On the way, he's teaching them the truths of God's kingdom and who he is. And while Jesus may be on a literal road, he's actually on a metaphorical road because he's on the path that the Father has laid out for him. There is a plan and Jesus is actually making his way in time with that plan in mind, making his way to, in a sense, his end, but to our good and his glory. So Jesus is on the way, not only with his disciples, but also on the way for the Father's plan, this plan that includes suffering, uh, death, resurrection, salvation. And on the way, he asks his disciples a question that each of us must also answer. Did you see it? Look again at your text. Look at your copy of the scriptures. Jesus and his disciples went out to the villages around Caesarea Philippi and on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? Now that's interesting because even today in 2016, people still debate about who Christ is. You can watch the Discovery Channel and see all these documentaries about evidences about him being a myth, a teacher, a nice man, a moralist, a religious zealot, a political revolutionary, all these things. And yet Jesus is asking his friends here What do people say about me? What do you think people think about me? Have you ever played that game before? You're asking maybe a loved one, what do you think other people think about us? It's a dangerous game, my friends. And so Jesus asks his disciples, what are you hearing about me? And so then they answer. Look at the next verse. Well, they replied, verse 29 or 28, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others One of the prophets. So there are some answers, and the guys have been around the crowds enough to know that there's some different views about who this Jesus really is. And so they begin with by saying, Well, some are saying that you're John the Baptist. Now that's interesting because we know as you read through scriptures chronologically that at this point John the Baptist is dead. So how can Jesus be John the Baptist? Mm -hmm. We know that John the Baptist was, in a sense, like a prophet, he's a forerunner to the Messiah. Something was very unique about him. And we know that Jesus, I mean, the crowd started believing that something was unique about Jesus. You can see how they can make the connection. But it's, John had been murdered at this point for someone else's entertainment. So Jesus is not John the Baptist. It was said of John the Baptist that no one would ever be like him as a man. But isn't it true that of Jesus Christ that no one ever be like him as the God-man? Hmm. He's not John the Baptist. The next answer that is given to Jesus by the disciples, well, actually some people say, Jesus, that you are Elijah. And people would have believed that because the prophet um, Malachi had prophesied in Malachi chapter four, we see that Elijah is supposed to come again before the Messiah comes to reign and to rule. It's interesting because if you've read the scriptures, you'll know that in the book of uh, Luke, chapter one, verse 17, an, an angel visits this priestly man who is uh, old in age and doesn't have uh, children and he and his wife can't have children. His wife's name is Elizabeth and this angel actually quotes Malachi chapter 1, verse 17 that talks about Elijah and saying, your son that's going to be born to you is going to be as Elijah. And what is the name of that son? Do you know Well, that was born to them? John. What was his nickname? What was his title? He was the Baptist. So he must have been good, right? So then no, Jesus is not Elijah. And if anyone is as Elijah, it would be John the Baptist, who also was not Elijah. So then what are the other options that people are saying? And you have to test what people say about Jesus. You have to test it against evidence and truth. So then they said, well, still others say one of the prophets. Now we know in another account that they say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So let's talk about Jeremiah. There was a belief, you'd have to read some extra-biblical literature about this, there was a belief that the prophet Jeremiah was to come and to bring the altar of incense with him and the Ark of the Covenant and then the Messiah will come to reign and rule and to obliterate all of Israel's enemies. That was the hope and confidence that people had and the message that teachers were giving young theologians, young God-worshippers. So we have to ask, is Jesus? Jeremiah No, Jesus is not Jeremiah. Think about your own life. I'm sure, for those of you that share about Jesus with the people that you love, what do people say to you about who Jesus is? What is the common sentiment in your life and the people that you influence in 2016? A good man, a moralist, some actually are saying he's a myth. Some people actually say he didn't exist at all anymore. That's becoming an actually a popular belief. It's interesting because of all the facts and data and evidence you'd have to remove to even say such a thing, but that's the time in which we live, of course. What have you heard before? A social justice advocate that he cares most, first and foremost, about people having water and food. Do you see some of that in Scripture? Is that what his biggest aim was, social justice? What have you heard? Anything different than I've said? Okay. So a lot of people have a view, and everyone has to have an answer to the question. It is the question so it's one thing to know what people say about him but then jesus makes the question personal did you catch that in the text and it's actually still personal today look at verse 29 but what about you he asked who do you say i am now this is the most important question that you will ever answer there are important questions we answer in life. Will you marry me? That's a big one. Paper or plastic? Just a little bit lesser than that. And then there's all these questions in between those two. I can't think of a, I can't think of a lesser question than paper or plastic. I don't know. I just want to go home. Okay. Something in between that. Okay. But this is the one. This is the big exam. It's a one question exam. And your life is the answer. Who do you say Jesus is? So he asked them, he asked his followers, these 12 guys. And in time, some of these guys end up being the ones that write what we see in the Gospels. And more followers to come. And they write down what they've seen and heard and what they've heard other people say and what they saw. And the Gospel authors want to convince their readers of what they're convinced of. And this is why they write things like, um, These things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ. So what answers do the disciples give Jesus? Look at the text again. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Then Peter answered, and you could presume for the group, you are the Christ, wow. Peter answers, you are the Christ. Now this is the second time the word Christ has been used in the book of Mark. The first time was actually Mark chapter one, verse one. Now we have the second time, and Christ or Christos is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word for Messiah or anointed. Christ means rescuer, deliverer, um, God saves, Yeshua or Yehoshua, which would relate related to Joshua, the Lord's salvation or God saves or rescues. And then we, so that's Jesus' given name. And then we have Christ, that's not his last name. It's not Joseph and Mary Christ, please introduce Jesus Christ to us. So we see a name and we see a title, Jesus' name, rescuer, deliverer, God saves, and Christ as basically Messiah or the anointed rescuer. Now, in ancient Israel, kings, priests, and prophets were anointed. Anointing literally carries with it the idea of anointing with oil, but that was also a symbolic act to indicate God's choosing. And the Father chose the Son to be the Savior of the world. So Jesus' title of Christ means that he is God's anointed one who fulfills all and every Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. Hundreds of them he does. And yet people debate still. However, the disciples could not know at this point all that being the Messiah entails. Chiefly that he was sent to rescue sinners. They didn't know. In Matthew's account of this same exchange, Peter's response is recorded as, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so Peter confesses exactly what the gospels are demonstrating to us. He gets the answer right, or if he's answering for the disciples, they actually have the right answer now. Before this, and Mark, we see that they say other things. You are the Son of God, other things about who Jesus is. And they're actually right every time. Everything they, t- thing they say about him as it relates to his name and his title are true. So what do you think convinced them? What do you think finally convinced them? Was it the last healing? Was it the healing of the, of the blind man now? Because they've seen healings before. Was it the crazy teaching? Was it the way that he engaged the religious leaders? What he did do and didn't do? What was it that ultimately convinced them to be able to say such a significant thing, the right answer to the one exam that we all will face who do you say jesus is right answer jesus is the christ what convinced them because there was proof all around them over and over again but just in the previous context we saw that their hearts were still hard this is the same for us today there's proofs over and over and over again what convinces one what torques a heart that one might be able to say jesus is the christ and in that matthew count of the same exchange Jesus actually gives us insight as to how Peter could even say that. Look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 17. Same exchange, just some more insight here. Jesus replied then to Peter's response. Blessed are you, Simon of Jonah. That's Peter's given name. For this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. When did you first come to grips with who Jesus really is? Can you remember? Someone said, well, I've always believed. Well, that, that's not true. That's not true. There is a beginning to belief because there was a beginning to you. When did you first believe? See, it's, it's the same for us today that no one just comes to believe in Christ by the evidences or the proof. First Corinthians chapter 12 verse three says that no one can proclaim Christ as Lord unless the spirit reveals it, this truth, this secret to that person. Another way of saying what Jesus says to Peter is you only know this because the Father's let you in on the secret. You only know this because the the Father's moved in you that you might know something that actually people don't know. And it still happens today. You can't believe Jesus is Christ unless God reveals him to you. When did you first believe? Can you remember? I'd heard the gospel growing up. I can remember being in church real young before the age of Five, six, and then at age seven, after hearing the gospel often in my school that I was going to, in the church, I came to trust Jesus Christ in 1984 at Iwana, a children's ministry program that met on Wednesday night. You had to memorize scriptures; so you could play in games. I love playing in games, so I'll do what I feel how to do. And there was prizes and crowns and all these things. It was great. It was a great way to get praise from people. And someone shared the story of the gospel, attached it to the story of Achan in the book of Joshua, chapter six. Somehow and I said I, I want that I recognized my need of a savior I recognized that I was a sinner and the proof of that was all around me in my life and I wanted his forgiveness and then at that moment I know that God's spirit came to dwell within me and I knew I was let in on something and I know this because then my heart opened up to all my friends and family that didn't know Christ and I didn't care about that at all before that moment when did you first come to grips with who Jesus really is? For those of us who have been convinced that Jesus is the Christ, wouldn't it be fair to assume then that there are implications for living? If you say this, then this, right? If you say Jesus is the Christ, then there will be implications for living. Now, we see in time for the disciples that they do carry out the great implications for their, for their statements of Jesus being the Christ. But at this moment, they are still battling. But what about for us today in 2016? If you hear say that Jesus is the Christ... Wouldn't it be fair to assume that there's implications for such a statement if you believe that to be true? Saying a true thing but then not always living that truth, that is actually the great conundrum of the great inconsistency of the Christian life, isn't it? Let me test. Let's just test what I'm saying, okay? We all do this. Debt is bad. Savings is good. Is that true? Okay. Nobody has debt here then? Okay. That's too personal. Here's an easier one. Sugar's bad. Vegetables are good, unless you've tasted them. Has anyone, I mean, has anyone ever seen the amount of sugar that's in a can of Coke? I've seen it, and I still don't even care. It's going to take more than that because have you tasted it? Isn't it true? Sugar's bad. Vegetables are good. We can say a truth. What are the implications? Cheating is bad. Faithfulness is good. Lying is bad. Honesty is good. Greediness is bad. Generosity is good. And is stating the truth, does that help us live out a generous life anymore just because you know the truth? Isn't it interesting that we have to teach our children to share? We don't have to teach them to be greedy. (laughs) And so it's true. You can know a true thing and know that it ought to have implications for how we live. And sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. Saying Jesus is the Christ is good and true, so how do you live in light of the truth? Peter answered rightly for the group, right? And that only by revelation from God, for sure. But this new insight actually comes with what they and nearly all of God's people understood the Messiah to be. When they said you're the Christ, they have an expectation in mind of how the Christ should behave and will behave and come through actually for them. To be an earthly political ruler from God who would restore freedom and prosperity to Israel. That was the view. That's what they were taught. You can look through the Old Testament and see why people would have that insight and expectation. So let's test it. When you look at the life of Christ and what they've seen so far for two and a half years, was Jesus living like a political ruler or an earthly king? Was he like that? Was he a warrior, soon uh, getting ready to soon like arm his followers to revolt against Roman oppression? Was he hiding like material blessing in a storehouse somewhere and just waiting for him to storm through Rome's uh, capital and just uh, st- start leading? We know that they have this in mind, the disciples do, because there's been times that people are saying, Jesus, when you bring in your kingdom, can we sit by you and the thrones next to you? They have a kingdom in mind. And Jesus is saying his kingdom is something very different. It's here, it's not yet, it's very different. So we know they have an expectation. So Peter says the truth thing on behalf of the group, you are the Christ, and with saying that Jesus is the Christ, there's an expectation how Christ would soon behave. But Jesus seems very different than what was expected. And that is why most didn't view him then as the Christ. That's why they would say, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, another prophet, because he did not seem very kingly. Have you seen his parents? Did you see where he was born? Have you seen his appearance? I mean, so they're saying a true thing, but I'm sure it's very difficult for them to even admit that. They're only saying it because the Father gave insight to Peter to say it. So this is a case, actually, of of conflicting expectations. And we have expectations all the time, don't we, of various people and by title? So, for instance, um, what is your expectation of how a husband is to behave? It's my joy to meet with couples as they do pre marriage counseling, and I love it because most of them think they know everything. So, I just get to sit back and be cool. I'm only 15 years in a marriage, and I might know something, maybe but they think they know everything and they're just doing this to please their parents or someone, or one of the two of them wants to do it or something. I love all of it. You can just see it all before you and neither of them, they've never fought before because everyone's putting their best foot forward. It's incredible. They don't plan on fighting. It's gonna be great. And he's gonna know how to repair everything because her dad's amazing at it. It's interesting because I've shared this before with church that most men marry a woman hoping, believing, expecting that she will never change, that she never will, her beauty will never fade and she won't get any smarter than him. Most women marry men hoping that she she has an expectation that the things she will change with them are the idiosyncrasies that drive her nuts. What do you think the likelihood is of his idiosyncrasies changing over the course of the next 40 years? Zero likelihood. And I'm sitting there waiting, ready for it. I'll say, I'll see you in in, in 10 months. It's going to be exciting. Most men actually in 2016 nowadays, because of the days in which we were raising passive boys, um, they actually are looking to marry a mom because their dream is actually not to learn how to repair things, fix things, to lead, protect, provide, initiate, teach. Their actually dream is to play video games and have someone make them some meatloaf. No, that's that's 1950s, not meatloaf. Um, Hot pockets, okay. (laughs) Do you think she might have a different dream, a different expectation? Yeah. So in time, the expectations um, come out, it's usually pretty intense, and then they have to figure out and recalibrate and then we'll see if humility reigns, you know? What about your friends? Do you have an expectation how a friend should behave? If you text a friend, what is your expectation that your friend should get back to you and how long? Do you remember growing up, like you tried to call your friend and maybe if they're not there, there's no answer machines yet, do you remember that time? If it rang, it just rang forever. Mm -hmm. I know some people that get so upset that someone can get back to them within a few minutes. Like you're supposed to be wearing your phone. When did we decide that um, the phone's gonna tell us what to do? but we actually do that in our friends. They didn't get back to you. That probably means that they don't like me. You start believing all this garbage, all this terrible stuff, and maybe they just were not available, you know? So we have expectations all the time, and the same is true for what we put on Jesus. And for the disciples, they had an expectation for sure of what the Christ was to be. Right answer, different expectations. So Peter and the disciples have an expectation of how Jesus would behave once they've announced that he's the Christ, we know that because in the next section of Scripture, Jesus qualifies Peter's statement about what being the Messiah really entails. Now, we won't go there now, but we'll go there in the future, I'll just tell you. Jesus basically says he's going to go to suffer and he's going to die, and Peter won't accept that. So Peter struggles to accept Jesus' description of the plan for the Messiah. So there's a contrast of expectations between Jesus and Peter, the disciples, as it relates to the plan. So truthfully, the upcoming death, burial, resurrection of Jesus will not meet any of their expectations of the Messiah. And we know that because when it happens, they run. This is not very Messiah like. When Jesus is betrayed and is taken captive by people that have weapons, Peter draws a weapon himself, thinking, oh, this must be it. This is the rebellion. I'm going to stop it. I'm going to be a part of it. Jesus says, no, put it away. I've not come to lead a rebellion. Well, aren't you the Messiah? The Messiah doesn't get taken. You see the trouble? Right title, different expectation. And that's actually something for us to consider today for ourselves. See, we can proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but do we, in our limited, self-focused perspective, accept his approach to being who he says he is? See, usually what happens in a relationship, what, I, what I'm coming to understand in my own life and as I hang out with people enough, is we have expectations on how Jesus should perform for us, how he should meet our expectations and our circumstances, and it's usually having to do with us and our lives. So actually what we want is not a Messiah. Actually, what we'd want, we don't want an anointed one. What we actually want is a Santa or a genie who will do our bidding and come through for us because he's capable, and which is true. But then, when he doesn't, then we feel justified to put pause on him because he didn't come through for us. You're going to wait over there. You're in suspension. So I want you to take a couple thoughts down and test these this week, would you? If you're a note taker, just consider these things as it relates to our view of Jesus as the Messiah and our expectations for how he ought to behave. So you can decide if this is true. Are you ready? Jesus doesn't always meet our expectations for our lives. Is that true? Jesus doesn't always meet our expectations for our lives. Admitting that might be something you need to do. Jesus doesn't always meet our expectations for our lives. That's a very different message than you might hear. It's not a very popular message. But... He meets our greatest need. Jesus doesn't always meet our expectations for our lives. You have dreams, I'm sure, of how life should go. And it's not always been going that way. So then you're in conflict. I totally get that, and I've had the same for my life, and I'll share in a moment. But he meets our greatest need. And what is our greatest need, loved ones? The salvation that's only found in him, which lasts for all time, all time. Second thought here to test and write down. So first is Jesus doesn't always meet our expectations but he meets our greatest need. Secondly, Jesus doesn't have to meet our expectations. Well didn't he come to serve and not be served? Jesus doesn't have to meet our expectations and this is because God the Father has set them. He's set the expectation already. The whole redemptive plan has been set and Jesus only does and says what the Father tells him to say and do. The scriptures tell us this. And right now is at the Father's side interceding for you. That's the plan. That's the plan he's working and he's faithful to do it. Jesus doesn't have to meet our expectations. God the Father has set the expectations, the whole redemptive plan. So we have to decide if we will accept the Father's expectations of Jesus, including those that are on our behalf. See, if the disciples had their way on what they believe Jesus being the Christ means, if they had their way, let's ask this question. Where would eternal salvation come for those who'd come after them? Right, if they had their way that Jesus was gonna be the Messiah and overthrow Rome through force and they'd all be made princes in the kingdom for their lifetimes and then they die and Israel goes on doing well for itself as long as Jesus is the Messiah, where would salvation for all time come for me and you? It wouldn't. It wouldn't. Salvation comes by Jesus following the redemptive plan, following the Father's expectations. And these guys then would have settled for something different. So being the Christ was way, way bigger and better than their plan. Way, way bigger than just this little swatch of land in the globe. It's actually like this global, for all time, future, past, present, plan. So that in time, when you were born, in time you would hear the gospel of salvation and you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But if they would have had their way, then there'd be nothing for you, I'm sure. Incredible? This is why we sing? (laughs) Is it possible then that God has set something up bigger and better than your expectation? What is your hope for this year? What is your hope for your children? What is your hope for Southbridge Fellowship? Is it possible, in light of what we see, how God acts and behaves, that his expectation is actually better than yours? That's hard to believe, isn't it? Because I can dream good. I can dream well. See, I'm guessing most of us have expectations on how Jesus should come through for us, and I know I do, so I'll give you an example. Let's talk about a real-life scenario. We have five children. I've told you this before. Our four oldest are biological, and our fifth is through adoption, but before our oldest, Mia, was born, early in the infancy of our marriage, we were, we were pregnant, and we had a miscarriage. And I thought, our story's different because everyone's different from other people, and I didn't have a lot of fellows to talk to, and how I carried it, and I shared this with you before, the news of losing the child was like, took like weeks and months for me. I remember going to the appointment and anticipating w- what week we're at and they were doing a um, sonor- or just to hear the heartbeat and they couldn't hear, the technician couldn't find it and so she didn't say anything. Of course, she brings someone else in and since we're new to this, we didn't know that that meant anything, of course, so someone else comes in and then they share with us. We're struggling to find the heartbeat and so now the anxiety rises a bit because we have an expectation, don't we? We have an expectation. We're expectant. And so we go to another room and now we're with a doctor and they do ultrasound and the doctor confirms what was a test to do before and that the child isn't, didn't survive. Now Amanda was greatly blessed because the doctor had the wherewithal to tell her you didn't do anything wrong. It was like that statement like helped bring peace for her which I was so grateful that I don't know if you knew the Lord at all or not but I'm so grateful that God had worked it out that she would hear that because that brought her great rest and peace but something weird happened with me. And I feel weird already because like guys don't talk about this stuff and all that and who am I going to talk to about how I feel about it, but here's what's going on in my mind. Um, where's the baby? Uh, what are you doing, God? Um, why, don't, why can't we have this baby? Oh, did I pray wrong? Did I misbehave? I have an expectation of how this is supposed to go and you're not coming through. Where are you? Can anybody relate? a loss of a loved one, a cancer diagnosis, a loss of a job, it's usually in tragedy that we find out our theology. Our real theology. And I was, I was struggling. I had, a con- I had a belief that the child was a boy by faith, I believe that. You know. And I, we were just in the ministry 15 years ago. And I'm supposed to be leading students of so the confidence in the Lord and I was just like struggling and My expectations weren't being met. So, in the course of time, I just recognized I actually didn't care about the answers to my question. I just wanted my child. I didn't care what God was doing. I just wanted my child. No answer he could give me would make me okay. So, I have a question. In light of life's tragedy and difficulty and expectations that we have on how God, through Christ, ought to behave on our behalf, what would it be like to begin focusing our expectations on Christ's character? and then view his work in our lives through that lens rather than set our expectations on how he's working out our personal preferred outcome. Do you see the difference? See, what happens though in our world is that you're getting a message that God's supposed to placate or accommodate you. That's anti-Bible, okay? So what would we like to actually focus on getting to know his character, which means you'd have to know him which means now you're getting into God's word to see what he's like, his character's like, so that when tragedy comes upon you, trouble comes upon you, or victory comes upon you, you view that now through the lens of what you know to be his character, what his character to be. See the difference? Rather than focusing on our personal preferred outcome, we're focusing on his character so that when stuff comes, it's okay. See, you'd have to know him to be able to do this. You'd have, to know, you'd have to know that you can expect him to be loving, even in tragedy. When something's bad, you need to know that he's actually loving you. You'd have to know that he's actually being just. Even when something seems unjust, the scriptures are promised, justice will come. Is it possible the Lord is working something greater than your idea of what justice is in the moment? I can connect with people that have had loss through miscarriage as a result. Everyone's story is unique though. You can't say I totally understand what you're saying because you're not in their life, you're not in their body, but you can connect, right? I can connect. You'd have to know that he's sovereign. If you trusted that he was sovereign, then you can know that he's got things in his hand and nothing gets to you without his permission. That's trusting in his character. It's knowing that he's acting in concert with his character. And doing, Jesus doing exactly what the Father wills. So when we choose to place our confidence in his character, then it's actually no problem to trust his behavior. So for the disciples, back to our text, they're saying true things about Jesus, and the true things they're saying have, they have expectations for, which are different than the Father's expectation. And we'll see in time, if you read through the Gospels, that Jesus actually doesn't meet their expectations, but does something way better, way bigger than what they ever could expect expected, which not just benefits them, but for all people who will come after them and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Amazing. And then to all who will call upon his name, they can have the confidence to know that he is working and willing that the things that are occurring in life are for the good. So then that allows, that confidence, living like that, allows a freedom to accept his work in our lives as he sees fit. And living like that, everyone, living like that is total peace. Like when I think about the future, I, I can't quite see the future. I have ideas or dreams and we all have expectations. We have expectations of how the country should go and how history, future, you know, should go and I have longings for my children how it should go. We have five, what's the likelihood that one of the five will come into trouble or trouble will come upon them? So I can fret and get, I'm really good at anxiety so I could have anxiety over that or I could just trust the Lord that he'll be with us and then we'll lean on him and then we'll get, we'll get through it together. So Peter answers rightly on behalf of the disciples. So what does Jesus say? Verse 30. Amazing exchange here. Peter gets the A for the essay. One sentence back, all you needed. Then Jesus says, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Huh? This is like counter Southbridge Mission here, Jesus. This is anti-evangelism. What do you mean, don't tell anybody the good news? What do you mean, don't tell anybody the truth? Why doesn't Jesus want people to know that he's the Messiah? And I think actually the next section, which we can't get into today, actually reveals the motive. As I shared before, Jesus describes what he's going to do, the Father's plan, the actual work of being the Christ. And we know that the disciples struggle with the plan. So why would Jesus tell them not to tell? Because to have the disciples go out and tell the truth about Jesus' title without believing yet in the redemptive plan would be a partial story, would be a partial message. Makes sense, doesn't it? You're not ready to tell. The story's not completed yet. And without understanding the work of Christ, it wouldn't be the full message. So we need to ask ourselves, in light of just that one verse there, What do people learn about Jesus through your and my life? Like if the scriptures weren't um, prevalent in a nation and all that was there was believers that came there somehow or just uh, were sent there from other churches as missionaries and the only evidence that anyone could have of Christ was looking at other believers, how would that go? How would that go for you? If the only evidence we could see of Christ was looking at your life, that you would proclaim that Jesus is the Christ and whatever message you have, would we get the complete message of Jesus? That's the imitation. It's not a condemnation on you or me. It's an imitation. Who would people say Jesus is if the only evidence for their answer would be by looking at you? Does your life spread the complete message of Jesus or is Jesus kind of just like your homeboy? He's good on the side. You like him on Sundays, but you got Monday through Saturday to figure it out yourself. Does your life spread the complete message of Jesus Christ or a partial message? You confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Christ but communicate something very different with the way that you live. I just want to invite you to not. I want to invite you to lay your life open before the Lord and say, I recognize that I need you. I recognize that I need your grace and your love and your mercy and I give my life to you because you gave your life for me. And this is my message to Southbridge. I long for every person that comes to the doors of the theater that they might know Christ, Christ as Savior, Christ as the Lord, Jesus as who he is, says he is, and that they would entrust their lives to him so that when trouble comes upon them, which is usually when I hang out with Southbridge people, that they would say, we've got Christ. It's okay, we've got Christ. It's more than I can bear, but I've got Christ. The pain is so great, but I've got Christ. Because this life is a vapor, loved ones, So what would it be like to live for him for the days that you have left so that for all time future, you can know that you live for him? See, this gives me the confidence to do things that are perceived as risk, because I've got Christ. I'm going to heaven, so it's okay if people don't like me. It's okay if tragedy comes upon me. It's okay if the next step that we take goes terrible, which it may, because I've got Christ. I've got Christ, it's okay and I just need to lean into him and learn more about him. He'll change me, he'll change my anxiety to peace, he'll change my anger to patience, he'll change my hopelessness to joy, because that's his character. How about for you, right? What would it be like if a church together collectively sought to live out the purpose and personality of Jesus in their world so that they may believe that the Father sent the Son, resulting then in life change? Wouldn't that be cool? That's the invitation. That's the invitation that Christ 12 had and 11 took him up on it. And you can read through church history to see what their end was and I think they were glad for it. And ours is to be seen, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for your son, Jesus Christ that you in love sent him to be the savior of the world so that whoever would believe in him would not have to be eternally separated from you but would have the promise of eternal life beginning now with you. We thank you for your grace and love and mercy that you extend to us, Father, in Christ and that it's evidenced through your people and how they treat one another. God, I ask that for this church that you continue to use them in a mighty way so that more and more people would not only be reached and saved but then built up and made disciples who make disciples so that when we're in the kingdom, we simply celebrate all that you've done with surprises, not even realizing who's been reached as a result of who here is committed to you. We look forward to being with you, and we're grateful for your presence with us, and we trust in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.